This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly. And I'm Matt Dancona. And this is The Two Mats for the week ending Friday, the 1st of March already. 1st of March. 1st of March. amazing. Where's it going? Where does it go? The podcast that gets things done and not in a boring way. Well, I I should hope so. What's that leading to? I have a feeling that that's what we've established is is pronounced as segue Ah, into (laughs) our conversation with Tom Baldwin, who's got a great new biography of... uh, the biography, I would say, yeah. of Keir Starmer. And, yeah. we, and we talked to Tom about the book and what he thinks about Starmer and, crucially, what kind of a Prime Minister Starmer might be yeah. if he wins. And also, pertinently to this podcast, potentially Keir Starmer's relationship to a new relationship with Europe. With which Europe, I, which is very interesting. I thought it was very fascinating. So very uh, what are we going to call this episode? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, the Man Who Knows Starmer Best. The Man Who... Yeah, that's good. That'll the, work. The yeah. Man Who Knows Starmer Best. The Man best. Who Knows Starmer Best. Or The Man Who Knows Starmer At All. Which is <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that would be yeah. mean, wouldn't it? Okay. The Man Who Knows Starmer Best. So this is The Two Mats, episode 34, The Man Who Knows Keir Starmer Best. Enjoy. Enjoy. So we are very delighted to say we have Tom Baldwin with us this week uh, for the Two Mats podcast. On the publication day On, ah, is it publication of his, day today? Of his biography of Keir Starmer. Congratulations. Both enjoyed, congratulations, we both enjoyed it very much. Welcome, Tom. Well, thank you. I, I walked past my small independent bookseller this morning 
and a small crowd had gathered around in excited anticipation. People were pushing each other aside. Really? Because these books are running out, and so if you haven't bought one yet, <laughs> yeah. do it while you still can. True, true story, listeners. True story. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> true story. Well, the true bits are pushing people out of the way. But yeah, yes, but yeah. exactly. Well, congrats on the splash it's made, because Thank it's been you. It's been everywhere, everywhere and, uh, and yeah. rightly so. Um, should we just jump in Why and ask Tom? In? Yeah. So... Um, Tom, uh, we've known you actually for a long time, about way back to Sunday Telegraph when you were political editor, a great distinction, and now you're an author again and having had a period of time in politics and then people's vote. So you know Labour and the progressive world very well, but you were approaching this as, you know, with your, I think with your journalistic hat on, really. Um, and the, there are so many phrases in it that leapt out when I was reading it, but one of the descriptions of Keir Starmer that I thought sort of was a good way in was you describe him as someone who is both extraordinary and very ordinary and I wondered if you could kind of unpack that for us I think part of the problem we've had in politics over the last few years is we expect political leaders to be a certain thing we expect them to fit straight lines and a template and then when they fail we say oh we hate politicians and one of the many paradoxes of life at the moment is People say they hate politicians and also say they want Keir Starmer to behave more like one. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't fit these straight lines. He's complicated. He doesn't have a tight backstory. It's a messy one with yeah. loose ends. He doesn't have some grandiose vision which will solve everything. He has more pragmatic approach to pursue values. Because the problems we've got in this country are complicated. The solutions will necessarily be complicated. So why do we expect our politics to be simple and fit straight lines? He doesn't. And I kind of think that's part of the reason he's succeeding. As, as I read it, there, there, there's this extraordinary personal um, backstory that is complicated and messy. And, 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 and his family is such a clearly a huge part of who he is. But... The more I read it and the more I started to... I understood his dad more than I understood him at the end of it. You know, I understood where his dad came from, why he felt embittered by the way he was treated in in, in, in his community, you know, as a tool maker, which, you know, as you say, in, in working-class society, that's actually a very prestigious, aristocratic kind of working-class job. But he wasn't in a working-class community and he felt kind of... Put upon him. He was a very diffident guy. So I understood his diffidence, but I, I wasn't entirely sure about why Keir, who is clearly portrayed in the book as a guy that privately is not diffident, is great fun, likes a pint, and I'd like to explore that mm. a little bit more. You know, clearly is very social, plays footy all the time, is obsessed with the Arsenal, but publicly appears diffident and technocratic and kind of austere as a man. And why do you think that he, he is reluctant to to let some of that warmth that he shows privately into his public persona? I think part of it is that childhood, in that your life in Tannhouse Road, Hurst Green, Surrey, in the 1970s, revolved around this extraordinarily sick mother who was... This is Joe, yeah? This is Joe, Keir's, Keir's mother, who was constantly going to hospital and... Starmer describes this time when he wasn't sure whether she was coming back and he waited up all night. He thought he had his sort of duty as a son to wait and see whether she came back and then the father comes back and says, go to school, she's okay. Yeah. And this happened time and time again. And in that place, there wasn't a lot of room to 
emote or say, I'm really worried about this. People were worried about whether Joe was going to die. Yeah. His dad, Rod, was pretty austere anyway. He wasn't going to allow a lot of emotion, but you're not learning to express your feelings like people do now. So partly it's about the 1970s, partly about, it's about his dad, partly it's about the peculiar circumstances of his mother. There were other, you know, his brother had learning difficulties. You know, the, you know, there's not a lot of space to be filled with emotions and so on. You just get on with it. Yeah. And you batten things down. But he's also, the things you talk about, about football and the pub, he's always reaching for things that make him more normal. If you're a teenage kid, you don't want to stand out. Right. You want to be like everyone else. You don't want, he didn't tell his friends that his mum was sick. Yeah. Does that make him stand out again? He didn't have a TV at home because his dad wanted to play Shostakovich when he allowed it at the time. Yeah. And so you get to school, they're talking about Starsky and Hutch or Tiswas or whatever you were. He can't join in the conversation, so he plays football. He does have a connection to real life, but real life is what normalises him. And I think it still does. Right. So it's quite an important component of his makeup as a politician now. He doesn't want to make his family part of the prop, or part of his brand as a politician. He doesn't want to let everyone film him playing football all the time or see him down the pub because that's how he refreshes his sense of himself. Although yeah. you make the very good points in the book that every time there's a photographer, not at his invitation, but there when he's playing eight aside, the normality of that eight aside diminishes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, if he does become prime minister at some point, that realm of protected normality is going to be almost non-existent, isn't the, it? The, the walls are closing They're in. They're closing in, yeah. yeah. And you know, he's talked a lot about his childhood in in a, in a long form way, which I think is okay in the book. But once you make your children part of a slogan, you're kind of diminishing your relationship with them. Uh, I mean, at one point, I I suggest to him that you know Boris Johnson did a very expensive refurbishment of the Down Street flat. He could rebuild a replica of the Pineapple Pub inside Down Street. You can stall his friends, Colin. Con Peacock could be there with a pint. Yeah. And his eyes light up for a second. <laughs> and then he goes, no, we can't do that. We don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's an... It's, it, because he is ordinary and extraordinary, that ordinariness and finding ways of constantly refreshing that is really important to him if he's going to continue to be the person he is now if he wins the next election. On, on his formate, the formation of his ideas and, you know, the constant refrain, no one knows what he stands for and so on, I think one of the things that I really found revealing in the book was the extent to which, you know, he goes to Leeds and then he goes to Oxford to read a, a, a postgraduate uh, law degree there. Um, does very well and starts you know as a lawyer very early on in his life writing textbooks about human rights law and it I'm, I'm, am I right in reading that sort of human rights law is his what Blair would call his irreducible core you know that's where a lot of his values come not all but a lot of his political values come from yes and no I, I think he's always positioned himself on the left but in a sort of vague identity way I think he has values rather than ideology yeah. Um, you know, this brief flirtation with this obscure thing called Pabloism. Pabloism. I love Pabloism. I am now a Pabloist. Yeah. Can, we, can, we have a, can we have a quick <clears throat> yeah. elevator pitch on Pabloism, please, Tom? It, it's apparently post Trotskyist in that it's about uh, bottom up self empowerment, red green politics of the 70s and 80s. And some of that actually is still in him. 
you know, when he talks about, you know, devolving power, when he talks about some of the green stuff, I think there's still flickers of that around. Um, but interestingly, when the, he had this magazine called Socialist Alternatives, which he was part of, and the people producing it said the thing that stood out in their memory of it, he was the guy who got it out. Right. He was the guy who was interested in the distribution. Right. He wasn't He's interested in hours episode. and hours and hours of discussion <laughs> about what does Pabloism mean. Right. He wanted to do the practical side of it. And I think in his expression of human rights or his expression of his politics now, it's about doing rather than just talking. Right. And so, you know, he did write his textbooks on human rights, but they're practical guides, how to use human rights. Right, law. they're manuals. Yeah. Than, yeah, yeah. And he does keep coming back to, you know, one of his you know, early clashes with Dominic Grieve, who's now a great defender of him, was, you know, he was defending... Who was Attorney, who was attorney, attorney General, General in yeah. 2010, or Shadow Attorney General in 2009. And he wrote, he did a speech as, as when he was Director of Public Prosecutions, defending the Human Rights Act against the Tory plan to abolish it. Well, they still haven't abolished it. But Dominic Grieve, who is now a sort of part of the traditional Conservative Party, so therefore can't be a member of the Conservative Party. Could be um, a member of the Labour Party. No, he's still a Tory. No, still I, know, a difference. I know, I, I, I know. I'm being facetious. But... No, but he, I mean, he, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he voted for Keir Starmer. Yes. Um, who he has enormous respect for. But, um, you know, he had a clash with Dominic Grieve defending the Human Rights Act then. The, probably the, most, the policies most consistently defended throughout his career has been the Human Rights Act, but not as a lefty thing he sees human rights as something which defends victims which extends britain's soft power abroad it's a very pragmatic tool which allows you to get a lot of things done yeah. rather than human rights yay yeah. and i think he's evolved in how he sees it so he sees things in terms of utility rather than you know how can i use this now how can i use this to affect the change I want to make rather than saying here's a big set of dogmatic values and I'll head forward no matter what. Yeah, he does have values, but he pursues them pragmatically, and that takes you to radical places. It takes you to change your mind. Yeah. So if you're looking for the most practical way to get from A to B, you may change your mind. Yeah. If you're looking for the most practical way to achieve change, you may challenge some of the old shibboleths in the Labour Party. And so most politicians define themselves as primarily radical. I've got my big radical vision. And then if necessary, pragmatic. He defines himself as primarily pragmatic and if necessarily radical. Now, that's no fun for political journalists who are looking for the big idea. Will it work? But it may actually get you further. They turn their backs. That's boring. He's just like following the footpath. There's another guy sort of rock climbing using only his teeth. But following the footpath might be the better way yeah. out. Well, let me let me just briefly play um, Devil's Corbinite and mm. ask you, because they loathe Keir Starmer. Some um, of them do. Some of them do, especially the more vocal ones on Twitter. You know, uh, especially the ones that he no longer go takes for lunch and stuff like this, like Owen Jones and stuff like this. They despise him and they call him a liar, the most duplicitous, de most devious man who only, you know, the only thing he has is ambition mm. and he'll do anything to get to a point in power. And he's done more 180s than Luke Littler. You know, he is absolutely, you know, he's done more U-turns. Uh, I've worked on that one. Long ahead. This <laughs> isn't is, is is off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. But he, so, We're here all week, by the way. <laughs> took me ages, that one. But... Um, haven't they got a point that he has in because you talk about you know you can change your mind but 
you have to examine the compression of time in which he's changed his mind over some fundamental things and so completely. Haven't they got a point to say, well, he is more about getting into power than he is about any set of guiding principles? Some of that, I think, is true. Look, he's a very, very competitive person. Anyone who's played football with him says he's, he's so hard and competitive. And that's something I don't think people necessarily see. So he really, really wants to win and he really wants to succeed at everything he does and he perseveres. But that's not the same as 1-0 to Arsenal will do. Yeah. It's not winning for the sake of it. And I think there's something about this changing your mind in politics, which we've kind of all got to grow up about a bit. I mean, most people in real life change their mind. You know, if you're running a business or a school or you're working as a carer, you change your mind about how to do things as facts change. In politics, it's seen as some sort of cardinal sin. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, maybe I'm odd on this. I don't think I am. But I'd actually quite like to have a leader who says, yeah, well, I was wrong about that. All the facts have changed. And if I was wrong about that, how do I improve my performance? How do I make sure it doesn't happen again? If the facts have changed, well, I changed. Rather than a leader who says, I said something in the year 2020, before COVID, before Ukraine, before Liz trusted whatever she was trying to do. But I'm going to say exactly the same thing now because I've said it and therefore I've got to stick to it. I don't think that's the best way of governing the country. That's not to say I don't want people to have consistent values and stand for something. But how you apply those values has to change according to the circumstances. And I, rather than distrusting him as a result, I slightly trust him more for his ability to admit that he gets things wrong. And he has got things wrong. I trust him more for his ability to adapt to different circumstances rather than pretend that everything is the same, as Theresa May once said. Nothing has changed. Things do change. Politicians should change. And I think that's quite English. I mean... It's like common law or our road systems. It bends to the folds of the landscape rather than trying to <laughs> drive a tunnel for every hill you see. Yeah. It, it more resembles what the country's like and what the people of this country are like, I think. It's interesting that you know he didn't become an MP until he was 52. And it occurred to me that by the age of 52, Tony Blair had been Prime Minister for nine years. Mm-hmm. And we've been through an era where, I mean, not Blair, but, but a, lot of, a lot of, especially on the Tory side of the House, politicians have been career politicians. You know, they've gone in straight after university, become special advisors or joined a think tank. They've never actually had any contact with the outside world at all. And, you know, it's clear in your book that it wasn't even certain that he would become a, an MP. You know, it could have gone either way. And, and I'm fascinated at what point you think he thought, right, I really am, this is, I'm going to go into politics I, I want to make a difference in that way you know I've done my time as DPP but I'm not just going to head straight back and become a you know extremely wealthy silk I'm going to I am going to try my hand at the at the top table I think it was a gradual decision and a pragmatic decision he definitely wasn't someone who spent his entire life sort of practicing his lay party conference speech it's naked in front of the mirror imagining or you know, reading Hansard yeah, 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 definitely not and, you know, if you, he was not just a lawyer, he was a very successful lawyer. And success tends to define your identity. You know, you have this courtroom voice, you, you win arguments on the basis of facts and evidence on quite narrow legal points rather than great arcs of oratory. And so it's quite hard to then 
change who you are and be a retail politician and been to all the things that politicians are meant to be. And to some extent, he has changed. He's got much better at his speeches and his interviews, but he's still not perfect. He's not the best. I don't think he'll ever be the best, but he's got better because he mm. perseveres. Why he went in is this pragmatic, you know, I want to bring change. I can bring a certain amount of change as a human rights lawyer, but not enough. Working inside the system, I can bring more change. Becoming public prosecutor, I can bring more change. That's still not enough. I want to get my hands on the levers of power, so I'm going to become an MP. Unfortunately, then went to nine years of opposition. Yeah. And he hates it. Yeah. And it's so odd listening to him. He goes, I've achieved less in these nine years than I've achieved at any other point in my life. That's fascinating. Like, hold on, you become leader of the Labour Party, you turn the Labour Party inside out, you've gone from a 20-point deficit to a 20-point lead. I haven't changed anybody's life. That's fascinating. And he's just so frustrated by that. Mm. Do you think, I mean, what hardened his desire to be leader? Was it Brexit? Was it the downside of Corbynism? What what was it that made him think, I'm the person to take charge after Corbyn loses? I think he didn't go into Parliament with ambitions to be leader. He... The summit of his ambition was probably to be Attorney General and head yeah. of the band-led government. And then he gets there, and Corbyn becomes leader, and Trump becomes president, and Brexit happens. And then Corbyn becomes leader again. And he thinks, this is a bit of a shit show. And quite early on, he's going back to his office after big events. Chris Ward, who was a senior advisor at the time, says he used to practice what he would do if he was leader. How, do, how would you respond to the budget? What right. would you have said at that point? Not on the basis that he definitely would, but I need to start getting better at this thing called politics, which I've now decided to do. Because he, he was very stiff at those early years. Yeah. You know, he was very loyally. And he, he spent a lot of this period trying to find ways of fitting what a political leader is meant to be better, but he's still quite stubborn. There must have he been doesn't a- want to give it all up. There must have been a confidence. He must have needed some inner confidence to grow within him as well to say to himself, well, I can be leader, you know. And I wonder how much of that was that he was surrounded by, you know, another accusation is that he's a very lucky general and that he, you know, he's in, he's he's been in opposition during the worst Tory government in living memory. You know, he didn't have to do anything to lose. But I wonder, did he, do you, do you get the sense that he, he is a born confidence guy no, or is this had to grow within him that he's he's up to the job it's really interesting he's not confident in the terms of sort of swagger and arrogance but he does have a pretty profound belief in his capacity to get something done but it's all pain he keeps going he goes on and on about he gets that from his mother right she was always in agony even to walk down the stairs was agony and she would walk up hills in the Lake District every summer on holiday. And he says, well, if she could do that, I'd just have to screw myself and get on and do with it. And he mm-hmm. has this relentlessness, which is extraordinary. And you don't see it in an interview. You don't show it. But he has this confidence of purpose and no matter how much it hurts. He doesn't like some of the things he's had to do in politics. He doesn't like politics he tends to put all the things he has to do in politics where it's talking about his parents or breaking a pledge into the same category of bad stuff I have to do in politics in order to achieve a bigger purpose whereas I think other politicians would 
make bigger differentiations. He doesn't. He just, that's what has to be done. That's what I have to do. Tom, let's take a very quick break there and we're going to come straight back and talk more about this brilliantly written by sorry to be so condescending but it is a brilliantly written I'll take it. I'll great rapid really read, yeah. read uh, and we'll come straight back after a short break this podcast is brought to you as ever by the new european newspaper and i hope you know what the new european is by now but you may not subscribe and i just want to say please do because it's the best way to support our independent journalism and this week i have a superb offer for you which is a free signed hardback copy of James O'Brien's brilliant book, How They Broke Britain. Have you read How They Broke Britain? I have, and I think it's terrific. It, uh, honestly, it's magnificent journalism, well, isn't it, it? I can't recommend it highly enough. And it'll make you... Um, it'll make angry you and Angry think and think. Yeah, all of those good things. And we've got plenty of signed copies by the man himself, James O'Brien. And you can get a free copy of James O'Brien's book, when you subscribe for just a little bit more than a pound a week, um, and you can go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats to take that great offer up. Please Brilliant. do. And there's a link in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I suppose the, the, the natural question to ask, Tom, is um, you've described him in greater detail and with more eloquence than anyone so far. I think it's the book you have to read to understand him. What sort of Prime Minister, on the basis of, I mean, you can't, obviously, there's stuff you can't know. 
the circumstances we can't be absolutely sure. But let's assume he gets into to office with a reasonable majority. Let's take that as a common ground. We know he's shifted, and, and the sheer velocity with which he's moved since mm. 2020 is amazing. You know, he's shifted from the 10 pledges of the leadership campaign to the five missions. We're now in a very, very cautious pre-election strategy. You know, no, nothing left to chance. Could he, might he be more radical in office? I mean, he talks about a, a decade of renewal. This is someone who's thinking of two terms rather than one. Yeah, I, I, sometimes I think when people talk about his policy shifts, they classically see the glass half empty rather than half full. Well, let's look at it half you full know, then. You know, well, yeah, if, if you go back to the 10 pledges, he's not nationalising water, but he is taking rail into public ownership. He is creating a publicly owned Great British Energy Company. He is looking at investment, new investment in public services. He is introducing new workers' rights from day one. And there's a lot there. There's a big, you know, ambitions which he set about in these missions, which are very personal to him. Talk about breaking the class ceiling, ending the snobbery that holds people back. No Labour leaders talked about that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. He does it for a personal reason. It's about his brother and his sisters who he left behind who didn't go to university. And he knows that they haven't been valued and people haven't seen their worth. But there's, there, is a, there is an edge to a lot of all this. I, mean, I, I remember some interview he did with Laura Kernsberg back last summer. And she said, are you sticking to the two-child policy? It's a rather nasty welfare policy which the Tories introduced. And there's no explanation... There was no reasoning. He just said, no, we, 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 we're not going to change that. That then became the story. In the same interview, he says he's looking at increasing housing benefits. Right. Now, if I'd been behind the camera working for Ed Miliband at the time, as I had been once, the story coming out of that would have been Red Ed promised to splurge billions of pounds on housing benefit hike. Right. They totally ignored that. Because the underlying narrative about Keir Starmer is what he's not going to do rather than what he's going he's, to do. He's, he's a traitor to the yeah, yeah, the labour cause. Yes. Yeah, so look, I think to some extent there is a radical in plain sight here. I think the way he talks about a new relationship between the state and the people and the state and private sector is really interesting. You know, there's a kind of communitarianism there. There's a corporatism there. There's something we haven't seen for 50 years. But it's not ideological. So at the end of the book, I, I'm pushing him harder and harder to tell me if there's a Starmerism. I say, this thing about the state, isn't that it? And he then goes into a very long anecdote about Gordon Brown telling him how businesses have changed since the financial crisis and won't be more involved in society. Then he tells me about how his mate Colin, who was meant to meet in the pub that night, but he can't because the plumber's here to fix the boiler, and it was freezing in there, by the way. His mate Colin down the pub, he works for Procter & Gamble, he knows how business works, so he agrees with Gordon Brown. And then he goes on about the Arsenal Community Programme, and they're a business, and they had to do stuff in the community. So I go, so you've got an ex-Prime Minister, you mate down the pub, and Arsenal, to explain your relationship. That's very Starmer-ish. Yeah. Is there a Starmerism? And he goes, oh, I don't know, I just want to get things done. At which point his wife says... If you want to get something done, you can start by ordering a takeaway because we haven't got any food. So there's this <laughs> constant ordinariness in how he's describing quite extraordinary things and quite big ambitions. Yeah. And I don't really want him to be more extraordinary. I mean, he's not perfect. 
He's not the best speaker. He's not the best debater. He's not the most visionary politician. He will be quite dull for a lot of reporters to cover it, unless they reprogram themselves. But I like the fact that he's still quite normal. But to that, okay. so in the book you say some of those who know him complain he lacks the political instinct to see how emotional connections rather than rational calculation can bring change. And something Matt and I have talked a lot about on the pod is, you know, we live in an era of politics as show business, surface entertainment um, and, you know, populism, which is all about simple answers to complex problems. And we know what a disaster that's been. But nonetheless, it has become the arena in which we all operate. So the question is, can he survive in that arena or by sheer force of character and and showing not telling, change it? Well, the proof will be in government. Yeah. And I would say two things. One is he's changed the Labour Party in an unsure way. He didn't come in in 2020 and say, I'm going to turn the Labour Party inside out, I'm going to do these big reforms, I'm going to throw my predecessor out. He just got on with it, step by step, pragmatic decisions, to a point where you get radical change. He's also got a record in running a big government department. He was 7,000 civil servants at the CPS. And he did bring change, and he challenged the institution when he thought they were wrong, rather than you know circling the wagons and trying to protect the institution. He challenged them on violence against women and girls, and lack of rape prosecutions and things like that. So he does have a record that you can look at. I think there is a problem, you know, he talks about a decade of national renewal. And he says that's been national because everyone has to come with us. We've got to inspire people to see that there's possibilities of change in this country. We work together like we did during COVID. Now, a lot of people say, I think it's a fair point, that he's not exactly a person to inspire people. You You know, people don't know what his missions are, let alone get inspired by them. They definitely don't know that they've got a key role in delivering them what he will say and he always goes for a football metaphor I'll do my talking on the pitch yeah now if I can get something done that's much more inspiring to people who have seen big promises come to nothing again and again and again or big radical solutions where it's Brexit or austerity or modern modernity make my life worse rather than better yeah so if you can in an unshowy unflashy unvisionary way get some houses built Watching houses built isn't the most interesting thing. No, it's important. Yeah, it's probably a better result than gathering a big crowd around you like Boris Johnson did to watch them set fire to the houses we already got. Yeah. So he may, he may be, to extend the football metaphor, he may be more Arsene Wenger than Bill Shankly, for instance, or Jurgen Klopp, more kind of quietly progressive rather than demonstrably poetic in his politics. One of the <clears throat> people who play football with him regularly... So he's not the best player. Talks a lot, you know, organising the defence, but he's not shouting and screaming. But he has a capacity to be in the right place at the right time. Okay. And when he became leader of Labour Party, all his friends, he's a barrister at Doughty Street, all his friends said, well, Keir's got no chance of winning the next election. He said, oh, you watch him. Mm. I played football with him. He gets the right place at the right time. He will win. So, you know, you don't always see the run. Yeah. You don't always see what someone's doing, you know, to find that pocket of space or whatever they find in football but he he's a lot better at this game of politics than people make out and step back from this the same people who said he had no chance of winning the next election 
are the people now who say, well, you can't change a country if it gets in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they may, you know, there's no reason why they're, you know, they could be wrong once and right the next time. But I do think they should show a bit more humility. Yeah. And not make the mistake, as so many people have, of underestimating him. Of underestimating him, yeah. Do you think, I mean, just drawing to a close one, do you, do you think he has the capacity to be remembered as a consequential change prime minister? I don't know, because... You know, that, I don't mean that, will he be yeah, one, but does yeah. he have it in him? Oh, yeah, does he have the capacity? Yes, I think he has the capacity to bring change. And I've seen that. We've all seen it, we just haven't given him credit for it. He has changed the Labour Party at extraordinary speed. And it nearly all went wrong after the Hartlepool by-election. As, yeah. as you reveal, he nearly um, threw the towel in. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's why he's being able to bring change. He's not going to cling to power because all that matters is power. He went into the office in the morning after the Hartlepool by-election, which another red wall seat, which Labour had lost to Boris Johnson, saying, it's getting worse under me, I'm not making a difference, I'm quitting. And several hours passed before he emerged in public and made a statement. Phone calls were made to his wife, his friends. He had to be persuaded that he could win the election. He wasn't just sitting there as leader, clinging on. Yeah. And that impatience, that perseverance, that drive is, I think, his most important characteristic. That combined with perhaps the superpower of bringing quite radical change and people still thinking you're dull. I mean, you know, the, what a result. <laughs> you think People think you're reassuring and dull when you've been on this white-knuckle roller coaster ride for the last three or four years. What an achievement. I mean, you know, compared to this lot, you know, I mean, you know, the, the hysterics, the daily panic... The daily crisis. Inter- interesting catastrophe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean that's, how, have we, how have we grown up reporting politics? You know, big grand visions, visions crashing down. Who's next? Who's up? Who's down? And Keir Starmer's moving his building blocks around, trying to build a house. I mean, a boring <laughs> walk away, and you've got a bonfire there. You've got a pile of corpses there. And you've got a new house there. Which one do you want? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we've got to let you go soon, but this is the New Europeans podcast. So we must ask you about what you think, and you may not know this, but what do you think is in his deep heart's core about Britain's relationship with Europe? Where, where do you think, once he's got into number 10, will he become more radical in moving us forward to a, a, cl- a closer, more meaningful relationship post-Brexit? I think it'll be closer but won't be as meaningful as I, probably you. Yeah, definitely me. <laughs> what about me? <laughs> and you, Matt. Everyone called Matt. Yeah. Um, no, look, there's a few of us. And, you know, most of the country. I mean, I, I first really met Keir when I was working the People's Vote campaign. And I was trying to persuade him, along with Alistair Campbell, to back the People's Vote campaign. And he was a stubborn bugger. <laughs> it was hard. And eventually he did... But he certainly wasn't a first mover. He wanted to get something like a customs union, not the customs union. He wanted a bespoke customs union. He got quite a long way down negotiations with Barnier on it. And then was eventually persuaded that, you know, soft Brexit was at that stage the least popular option. Where he is now, I think he's in a slightly different place. He doesn't want to expend all the energy 
of a first term Labour government opening up these arguments again, probably not getting very far. I'm not sure there's huge appetite in Europe to have us back at the you know, this rather awkward country back in at the moment. Yeah. There are lots of deals to be done, one by one, incrementally, some low-hanging fruit. At some point, bigger decisions will have to be made. At some point, those incremental decisions amount to something which people might condemn, or you hit a cliff face. I don't think he wants to come to that place, in, certainly in the first term. I don't know what shape it looks like. And I also think outside events are going to change Europe. I mean, if Trump wins... Suddenly, Labour's plans for a European security pact become very relevant, and Britain's in the lead. Yeah. Because we're going to be fighting Russia on our own. Now, forget the debate about single market. It's about how Britain will be leading a European security pact. Yeah. So, so the exact shape of this is yet to... All I can tell you, I think, is his attitude, which is he wants closer alignment... He's not batshit crazy like the Tories and unable to take basic decisions in the national interest. I mean, that's, that's where we've got to. Yeah. They literally can't do things which everybody wants them to do because they're governed by people who've lived in the badlands of the fringes of politics for the last few decades. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. They're in power. So you'll get sensible, pragmatic, incremental moves towards a better relationship with Europe. But it won't be the big move that you want and probably me. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, listen, that's disappointing, but probably. Well, it might not obje- be disappointing. It, it might not yeah. be. Di- it might not be disappointing. I, I yeah. mean, we'll we'll have to see. We'll I guess. have to see. You know, all politics is a choice between better or worse, right? Rather than perfect and it, yeah. you know imperfect yeah, yeah. or wrong. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And, I mean, in this case, I think it'll be a choice between better and much, much worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. Well, that's certainly true. Tom, thank you so much for that. It, I found it absolutely fascinating. I'm sure all the listeners have. And the book, Keir Starmer, the biography, is on sale now. Yeah, crowds are gathering. Crowd, yeah, see if you can lay your hands on one of the few last copies one, available. One, one critic <laughs> called it the political book of the year. A very, very... Really? Already? Very, already. A, 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 a very wise man described it as that. Um, Excellent. And he's always right. Well, I can just say it is a rattling read and you uh, you do shed light on a man um, who has avoided illumination to date. So thank you for doing that. Thanks, Thank Tom. you for coming in. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much to our guest, Tom Baldwin. Uh, we must get him back on. We definitely must get him at back on. At some point in the future. Yeah, fabulous. And the, the book, Keir Starmer, the biography is on sale now. Please get in any questions, any feedback to... Two mats at tnepublishing.com. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, at tnepublishing.com. Or if you listen on Spotify, you can message us there very simply. And that's exactly what Alison Richardson did. And she says, just want to say thank you. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Your last Q&A was fantastic. De nada. I sometimes feel alone in my worries about tax, ultra-processed foods and wealth. So good to hear you. You are not alone. Thoughts. You are not alone, Alison. Uh, and as you've asked for more, you will get more, I can guarantee. So shall it be. Um, let, it, let it be so. It shall be so. We're back with a new Q&A episode on Sunday. Um, Remember our subscription offer. Um, You get a free copy of James O'Brien's brilliant book, How They Broke Britain. Um, Just head to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. Maybe we should get some copies of Tom's book as well. I think we should. Yeah, I'll speak to the publishers. Um, 
There is a link in the show notes. Thanks as ever to producer Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And until next week... It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from him. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.